This is Forest Fireside Chats, a podcast produced by Elsa Soderstrom and hosted by Cora Martin, with special support from Emma Botters and Meredith Prief. Keep listening to gain a new outlook that we hope will expand, uplift, and brighten the U.S. environmental movement. Welcome to Forest Fireside Chats. I'm here with Elsa, as always. Elsa, how are you? What's What's been going on? Hey, Cora. I am good. It's good to see you. I love these monthly check-ins that we do because it's a good way to pin down Cora and actually hear about her life. <laughs> I'm doing well. I, my family, this was our 16th annual Jarts and Cribbage tournament this past weekend. And Jarts are lawn darts. They're really fun, but they are not manufactured anymore. So you have to get them at like garage sales and estate sales. But <laughs> we always have a lot of people staying at our house and who come in from town. And it's just a big party with lots of charts flying around and cribbage playing and swimming. And yeah, so that was it was a great weekend. Got to see some of my friends from high school and college and all that. Wow. Okay. Well, first of all, that sounds awesome. I I have heard about this famous tournament weekend since I met Elsa and she actually taught me and my mom how to play cribbage a couple months ago so I'm counting on being invited to one of these (laughs) summer events one day Um, open invitation for you (laughs) (laughs) but what about you you've you haven't been home much in the last couple weeks I've been traveling I so I'm in a master's program and being in school so often makes it hard for me to travel for work, which is pretty typical of people at my level at my job. But the past like month and for the next month, I don't have school. I am open for travel. I was just in Mexico City and then I went to Quito, Ecuador. And then next week I'll be in San Salvador, El Salvador, and then Lima, Peru. And then I, my world tour would be over. But it's like a month of, I'm su- I feel super lucky but I'm so tired <laughs> and I just, yeah, I'm trying to enjoy it, but it is, it, it's work. So it's not like super glamorous. No one should envy me. And her crazy travel schedule makes it difficult to find times to meet with our guests. She met with our guests for this month at like 7 p.m. on a Sunday night. <laughs> yeah. And that Sunday night was two days ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is very much a quick turnaround episode, but we are we were so lucky to get to talk to him. He took time out of his vacation in Michigan to do the interview. He is a broadcast journalist, one of the most decorated broadcast journalists in the entire country, uh, Brett Ship, and he has been working on this story for the past two years related to illegal methane emissions in Texas, and the story is breaking in a short documentary this coming month. And so we got to speak with him about his first discovery of the issue and his work with regulatory agencies in Texas and nonprofits in Texas to tack down this this problem and what can be done about it. And so he had so much passion and obviously he's been working so hard on this project for so long and we were very lucky to get to hear from him. I'm anxiously awaiting hearing his perspective and more background on how he has gone about digging in information and and bringing all of this to light. 
So I just want to quickly say that we are $35 away from our goal of $100 to pay for Elsa's microphone. So if any of you all would like an FFC sticker, donation of a minimum of $5 is all it takes. And you also get a thank you note from me, just a reminder. The other thing I wanted to tell you, Elsa, is that I'm seeing Meredith in a couple days. No way. What? Yeah. She's coming to D.C.? Yeah, she's visiting me in D.C. She has a little time before she starts college. And so I'm going to see her right before my trip to El Salvador. I know. Isn't that crazy? I'm so excited. I'll get Emma to have us post ourselves together in D.C. on the FFC Instagram. (laughs) Well, I hope you all enjoy this episode. I I think this story is going to get a lot of national attention in the next few weeks, or at least I hope it does. So if if you all could share the story... And I encourage you all to watch Brett's documentary when it comes out. I know that we'll be sharing a link to the documentary on our Instagram. So go check that out in the next few weeks. Anyway, without further ado. Well, Brett, thank you so much for joining today to speak about this issue. I quickly want to introduce you. Brett Ship is an esteemed journalist and investigative reporter, currently working as a news anchor and reporter for Spectrum News One, based in Austin, Texas. For 22 years, Ship served as an investigative reporter with WFAA TV, showcasing dedication to uncovering the truth and holding the powerful accountable. In 2017, he briefly stepped away from journalism to pursue a run for Congress before embarking on a new chapter of his career. He established his own media company, Brett Ship Media. With an illustrious career marked by exceptional storytelling and reporting, Ship remains a trusted voice in journalism, consistently shining a light on crucial matters that shape our world. He is here speaking with us today about his upcoming report on Texas methane emissions, transparency and regulation in Texas, and environmental justice issues facing the state. So I'm so excited to speak with you, Brett. I first want to just ask, you've been working on this story about methane pollution from natural gas drilling rigs in Texas and the lack of action by regulatory agencies to control this issue. It's no secret that Texas is the leading producer of oil and gas in this country, but can you kind of walk us through how you first came across this story's particular angle, how you learned about unpermitted methane emissions across the state? Cor, thank you for bringing me into the conversation. We're having it because it is one of the the most important and gripping and disturbing urgent matters that any reporter can do. And the, the country needs to wake up to. And as a reporter, 40 years, this year will be my 40th year in television news. And over the course of one's career, you start to appreciate the importance more and more of what it is we do in reporting and in journalism. And nothing to to me is more important than educating the public about critical issues and helping to bring that information to the public and edify the public and get the public moving on doing something about it. And if it means, you know, alarming them or disturbing them or making them uncomfortable, then so be it. And I certainly think that this topic is as disturbing and urgent as any as I have ever covered. Now, how did it 
I come on to it? Well, uh, having worked most of my career in Texas, I'm certainly aware of the, the oil and gas industry in Texas. There is a huge conflict within this state between the interests of people who want to save the planet and people who want to make a lot of, of money. And, and as you said, this is Texas is the greatest energy producing state in the country. We're number four on the planet. If you were to take regions and entities, countries, of production of energy of oil and gas, Texas is number four as a result of that. And really, it, it, the, 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 the matter became urgent once fracking became popular we suddenly saw the price of natural gas go from here to down here. And we saw jobs in Texas. It, it's cheaper for all of us to buy our energy now because of, of fracking. The, the problem with fracking is, is how it pollutes the environment. Those operators who do it, uh, who cut corners, are creating a huge, huge hazard not just in the fracking industry, but in the processing industry of, of, of when, when gas comes up out of the ground, when oil comes up out of the ground, it has to be processed. And the focus of, of my investigation and in my documentary to air soon is how methane, which is natural gas, how it comes up out of the ground and is supposed to be harnessed it's supposed to be kept within the pipes as oil is produced and turned into gasoline. The natural gas that comes up out of the ground as well is supposed to be harnessed and captured and then sent off in a different direction. Well, what's happening in Texas is it is being released into the atmosphere because of carelessness, because of callousness, because of ignorance, because it's a hassle to a lot of these guys producing all this energy to 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 harness that methane and do something constructive with it, which is, you know, keep the lights on and the air conditioning going. Natural gas is very important. The reason we stay cool in Texas mostly right now is because of natural gas. We run out of natural gas and you know we're gonna die of, of heat stroke. The important thing is to know that there is a safe way, there is a correct way, there's a responsible way to harness natural gas and then there is an irresponsible way. And that irresponsible way is what is happening. We are poisoning the environment and we are warming the planet to a point where you see what's happening. What we're, what we're seeing in the news every day in terms of heat waves and monsoons and hurricanes and, and crazy wild weather and wildfires and tornadoes in the middle of the summer and things that we just don't normally see Scientist after scientist after scientist are all telling us we are we have got to stop superheating the planet. And the number one chemical that superheats the planet is not carbon dioxide, but it's methane. Wow. Quickly, when you were chasing the story and when you were meeting with people and learning about this issue and planning on reporting on it for this documentary, did you come across any pushback? from the oil and gas industry or regulators in Texas? 
That is such a great question. And it is such an easy answer. And it is a confounding answer to that question. No, there's no pushback. That's what's amazing is when you ask these tough questions, when you seek the records, when you go to public officials and try to get answers, they run away. When you try to interview oil and gas executives, they decline to do an interview. And that's one thing that I've learned. And one thing I'm very proud of with this documentary is the facts that we are putting in our story are unimpeachable. They're unimpeachable. Nobody is coming to us saying, you're wrong. And they're not coming to us saying, you're wrong and here's why they're you're wrong. Because they can't. Because they know that the information is impenetrable. It is unimpeachable. You cannot poke holes in the information that we're putting out there because it's true. And in the the the, the course of the documentary, all most of the proof is not on paper. It's on recordings. It's all recorded through these clear infrared cameras that a lot of the activists have. And they go around from site to site to site to site and everywhere we go. And I know I went out there with them and I looked through the FLIR camera and I looked for myself and you can see the plumes, the plumes, the great plumes of clouds, which are coming out of these stacks. And that's all methane. And again, one of the scientists we interview, Gita Prasad, who's a climate scientist with the University of Texas, she, she says over and over again, you must understand that methane is a hundred times more damaging to the environment than CO2 because it super, super, super heats the environment and global warming is our biggest enemy right now. And if we don't put a cap on the on the methane that's leaking into the atmosphere, superheating it, we're done. We're done. And what's happening with, you know, people are talking about, well, we're getting close to the tipping point. I read things every day that tell us that that the scientists say we are, we are beyond the tipping point. We, we don't know if we can stop this now. There are things that are happening in our society that are helping, you know, electric vehicles and, and technology is helping and other clean energy sources such as wind and solar, which, by the way, Texas is number one in wind and number two in the nation in solar. So and soon, within the three or four years, we will be number one in wind and solar and all renewables. So it's not like Texas is evil. We're doing it all, but we're also supplying the world with natural gas, especially now with the conflict in Ukraine, the Russians stopping the pipelines and natural flow of natural gas coming out of Russia has been interrupted. And so the port of Texas, Port Arthur and, and down in Corpus Christi and Galveston, it, there's huge tankers leaving port every day going out across the world. So that's how important Texas is strategically in this industry. The, the demand is so great and the absence of controls is really our biggest enemy and the clock is ticking. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. As you know, I got my degree in environmental science, and I just remember reading report after report about how it's going to be methane emissions in large scale that are going to lead to those like apocalyptic climate scenarios. Yeah, it's 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 going to be 
important for us to start those controls on methane. And, and like you said, like thinking of renewable energy and also thinking of carbon capture and methane capture technology. I could say one thing with what one of my sources, uh, Sharon Wilson with Earthworks, part of her research and her discovery process, she noticed these, these capture, this capture technology that is supposed to be restricting the release of methane. She says in, in, in every case when she, every case that she ran into uh, evidence of, of this new technology to, to restrict the release of methane, it did, it wasn't working. Those devices weren't working in every case. And, and she's of the belief that you cannot you cannot harvest natural gas safely. And, and she's staunchly opposed to even the use of natural gas. Unfortunately, we're married to natural gas. And the only thing we're going to be able to do to, to live with it is to extract it correctly and safely. And, and we're just not doing that now. And the big part of my story, half of my story deals with the fact that the regulatory agencies in Texas don't give a damn. They don't give a damn. And it is very clear, not just from their words, but from their inactions. Well, that's a really good segue into my next question. Yeah, you you noticed, obviously, the Texas Railroad Commission and other regulatory agencies that just were not doing their job and they didn't care, as you said. Did you come across, when you were talking to people at Earthworks and other organizations, any things those those regulatory agencies could be doing to 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 handle this or is there not like a policy or legal framework in place for them to actually take action what 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 do you think they they should be doing or could be doing to tackle this issue well what they could be doing is enacting and passing greater restrictions that's the the biggest problem right now is that there's such an absence of of ordinances that govern the release of toxins that control the flaring and the release of methane that goes on it is almost a total absence of accountability by state regulators and the oil and gas industry is regulated by an entity called the Texas Railroad Commission. And the Texas Railroad Commission is so averse to any sort of correction of the way they're doing and the way they operate that bills have come out and proposals have come out to just at least change the name of the Railroad Commission to the Oil and Gas Commission, it's like, no, we're not even going to do that. So it is this resistance to change, resistance to criticism. It's part of the documentary. They they won't return my phone calls. They won't really provide me with documents. So I show up to one of the meetings and they say, hey, this isn't the time or the place to talk to us. You need to make an appointment. And there was no appointment. They weren't going to talk to me. They gave me statements ultimately there's just not an accountability or any pressure from the media in mass or the public in mass to force them to do anything. And, and, and more importantly, one of the most telling things is I spend a good part of the documentary going into the field with a former investigator, a field official, uh, an investigator for the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. And we go out and we go into 
the wild with the camera and we go to facility after facility after facility that is leaking, spewing, billowing methane into the environment. And he used to be, as I said, the lead investigator for the agency. And once he became so disgusted, once they got these FLIR cameras, he says that we we ordered like 25 of them and, and they sat in a closet. They did not even use them. The only time they would use them is not proactively, but retroactively when there was a complaint, when somebody from the public complained about release of toxins or not just methane, but, but volatile organic compounds like xylene, toluene, benzene. That's what's coming out of a lot of these facilities. And it's, and it's killing people and it is making people sick. And the government is not even doing the least it can do to try to protect the public. And any laws that have been tried to uh, be put in place by municipalities or counties or other entities, the state has come in and said, you don't have the authority to regulate the oil and gas business. Only we do. And we choose not to. There's just a, a, a brick wall when the public or interested parties or activists or anybody tries to 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 come in and make a make a change and make a difference. It, the industry is too powerful. They're just too powerful. I just have one really quick follow up to that. What at what level of governance do you feel like this issue would be? taken under consideration like a governor that wants to tackle this issue do you think has to be local government what political leader needs to prioritize this well the epa you would think would be the ultimate authority but even the epa under the biden administration has backed off on its intentions of strengthening the 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 rules on emissions especially methane admissions. That was going to be one of the priorities of the Biden administrations. They came in and got really tough on methane and they chose not to do that. And so the activists are, you know, down on the Democrats. It, it, it takes a, an amazing amount of political pressure to affect such a powerful, the most powerful industry in the state of Texas. Can the governor do it? Sure. Lieutenant governor, the legislature, they can all pass rules. They can put people in charge of the Texas Commission of Environmental Quality, which are all appointed by the governor. They can put people in who care, who can make a difference and who insist that rules and regulations either be put in place and or followed. And right now, neither neither is happening. The rules are being enforced by the violators themselves. They are in charge of policing themselves. The former investigator who we interviewed, Tim Doty, who's now a private consultant and doing work for the Environmental Defense Fund and for Earthworks, he is almost a lone wolf. I mean, he is out there filing complaints. He is documenting. He is researching. He's putting all the evidence he can into complaints. We talk about at one point in time last summer, two summers ago, he filed 37 complaints and only one. And, and he had evidence on all of them. He had the video. He had Everything that you would need to say, look, this is the problem and how egregious it is. And, 
and the lack of 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 you know state enforcement is is just sickening because all of his complaints were rejected except for one and it resulted in one $6,000 fine so the rule in texas is if you uh, detect a leak or you release methane you have to report it you have to self report well even if they do self report most of the time they don't but if they do nothing happens to them it is from the state officials promise to be better promise to do better and rarely are there ever any meaningful fines rarely tim doty you said was the name well thank you to him oh, gosh i feel i have heard so many stories of people taking on that like kind of lone wolf persona for these types of issues and just powering through and and i really hope that this documentary reaches a very large audience and people hear about this issue. I want to thank you so much for taking interest in this. I know there's a lot of things out there that you're interested in and a lot of work you could be doing. And I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that this issue has been given consideration and I hope it reaches, I hope it gets national attention. Well, and, and Cora, it is my firm belief that this may be the most important thing I've ever done. And I've done a lot of important stories, but I think uh, it could, I can easily argue that this is the most important story I've ever done. I've been working on it for two years. I've been amassing interviews and facts and evidence. I, I have been vetting the facts. I have double-checked my sources, and the evidence is overwhelming. The evidence is overwhelming. And, and I'll leave you with this. At one point... Last year, it was almost a year ago, and this is in the documentary, there was an inordinate rainfall in Dallas last August, and it was one of the biggest rainfalls we'd ever seen in the middle of August it, in history, not just in August, but in history of Dallas, Texas. A 13-inch rainfall in a matter of hours was unprecedented. So the governor, Greg Abbott, comes to Dallas to declare Dallas a disaster area. And he's at a news conference. And just weeks before, we had all been covering wildfires in West Texas that were highly destructive and record heat. And the year before that, we'd had a deadly ice storm, which killed more than 250 people. And so we have deadly storms, we have wild weather, we have amazing extreme weather, we ha have calamity and catastrophe and tornadoes and hurricanes and everything that is in intensifying. And here, the governor is in Dallas signing uh, a, a declaration of emergency. And I asked him a question after all the reporters were at, through. I, I said, uh, Governor, I have one last question. Do you, as you sign this, do you see any evidence of climate change amid all of these catastrophes? Do you see any evidence of climate change? Well, the governor goes on a one minute and 45 second speech and he mentions the word extreme weather about five times in that minute and 45 seconds. And he does not, he refuses to say the word climate change. And I saw where he was going with that. And when he was out of breath and stopped for a second, I said, Governor, do you think at all this has anything to do with climate change? 
And he goes on another 45 second speech and refuses to say the word climate change. And I have the temerity at that point to say, Governor, can you even say the words climate change? And I get interrupted by his press aide and, and next question, next question, next question. I was right. He was not going to say climate change because it's not in his in his vocabulary and it will never be in his vocabulary. And that's the problem we face. Yeah. yeah wow. I mean, you said it exactly right. Texas is has 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 become almost like the perfect storm for all things climate change. Like I always think about like Florida, I think about California, but yeah. Texas is at the center just the same. One of the, the and I'll, this is the last thing I'll say, is that one of the first things, the factoids that I point out in my documentary is that according to Climate Trace, and this came out in the Paris, uh, the meetings, the, the climate meetings in Paris last year, um, that the number one polluter in the planet, the number one polluter in the world, region of pollution, is West Texas and the Permian Basin. Number two is a region in Russia where they produce oil and gas. But by far and away, the greatest polluter on the planet was the Permian Basin in West Texas. And nobody has disputed that. Nobody, because it's true. It's disturbing. It's very, yeah. very disturbing. And not one reform, since I first reported that a year ago, not one reform has been enacted to try to correct it. Not one. Okay, well, this is a podcast about the environment. And sometimes we have to end an interview on such dark terms, because we are facing a very dark future. It's a dark, it, it is a dark subject, but it is one that we have to keep in the light. We have to, yes. We have to keep talking about it. We have to keep thinking about it. And we have to keep bringing these issues to the forefront. Okay, thank you so much, Brett. I can't, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your vacation to speak with us. Uh, I, I know you're a very busy person and I just wanna tell you how much I, I'm grateful to you. Well, this is important and I'm very and I'm uh, I'm very proud of you for what you're doing and your endeavors and your work and your passion. And I'm following your 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 works and your schooling and your career and and you're and your your father and I are very 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 and your mother we're all very proud of you you're doing you. great work thank you very much all right have a really great rest of your vacation and yeah, thank you again for the month of July our sustainability story delves into the inspiring story of a completely grassroots effort to stop the construction of the Arizona Coyotes NHL stadium. We take you to Tempe, Arizona, a city with a determined group of citizens who organized under the leadership of Dr. Marie Provine. We spoke with Marie to understand her motivation and determination to spearhead this campaign. The opposition campaign, titled Tempe First, claimed victory and cited the need for more public discourse related to decision-making that affects the entire community. Tempe First said the outcome is an opportunity to begin having inclusive, wide-ranging, deliberate, and multiple public conversations about what we want and need as a community going forward. 
At one point, they gathered over 100 people at a public meeting demonstrating that it was a genuine grassroots effort. And it kind of set the tone that, that respectable people were behind it, you know, not a bunch of crazy kids or grumpy old folks, but a kind of a representative group of, of residents. And that we had some reasons that it wasn't a in my backyard thing, but that, that this was really a bad proposal. And we, and we latched on to things that we knew would really irritate people, like 30 years of tax subsidies for a billionaire, which is a very typical thing in hockey stadium and other stadium projects. The congestion was obvious to everybody because people know that the area where it was going to go and that there was just one little street. So we had our agenda was easy, appealing, and then we had a really, I think, a, not flawless because we did make a few mistakes, but a pretty darn good uh, means of vetting our own material and getting it out. We also had the help of a, a group called Agave, which is a public relations firm that decided to work for us for free in hopes that if this passed, this would be a great a feather in their cap. And they were super helpful on social media. None of us were um, super good at that. And they helped us with a lot of the publicity. And then we, we at one point, we had to um, figure out, well, we're still just a few people and we were biased toward older people and we didn't really want that image and we lucked out that a group called worker power which had been down in georgia trying to get voters to register came back and they were ready to help out and they started doing a lot of the door-to-door -door work and it's hot here in the summer and they they just put up with it and did a lot of doors and added a whole different flavor because their agenda was also anti-coyotes but they they were really thinking about more for environmental reasons and because of this, the capitalist overreach involved in having this billionaire get all this, all these benefits and he's going to make millions. And, you know, so that we, we weren't perfectly aligned on our issues, but it really didn't matter. The issue was really getting the word out and uh, doing it with conviction. And they were, they were great at that. So that's kind of how we, um, how we got going and how we raised awareness and the thing just really kind of built on itself you know you have a house meeting at one place and then people want to do it somewhere else the road to victory wasn't easy and they faced challenges with media coverage and the confidence of the coyotes campaign the newspapers were terrible we got very very little newspaper coverage i almost felt like the the sports page people have now owned the newspapers we didn't get much help there. We, they assigned a, a not a very good reporter to uh, to our situation. So, but we kind of anticipated that it would only come to the uh, news right close to the actual vote. As far as why we were successful, which I know is something we wanted to talk about, we were so lucky that there was uh, the the council, and we don't know precisely why, decided to do a referendum so that the public actually got to vote on this. For a referendum, which is a direct vote by a citizenry on a specific proposal or law, the Coyotes needed to gather signatures, so Tempe first decided to create its own signature gathering effort. Well, I think they were entirely confident that they were going to win. And that, that kind of the most basic thing I think that's relevant for other campaigns is that we were truly 
a grassroots effort. And we had the benefit of what grassroots do, which is communicate with each other and grow it from the issues that are on the ground. And they were a grass tops effort and they didn't know much about Tempe. You could see it in their signs, which were not nearly as well designed as ours. And they also emphasized that Tempe would make millions of dollars from this, which you know did not really resonate with people. The idea that the city government that wasn't all that popular anyway would have millions more to spend was not the issue that they should have promoted. So they did not, in their arrogance and out of touchness, and the fact that they were um, working with the city government, which I think was also out of touch, they really didn't do their own campaign very well. So they bought a lot of organizations. They gave great big donations to all sorts of organizations, but they didn't pay attention to whether they were ones that were supported by voters. So they, you know, they looked very good on paper, and there was so much money. I mean, they had. We had a total of $35,000 and they had, I don't know, a couple million in this. Um, so they were throwing money at, you know, maxing out political contributions and stuff, but it, I don't think it paid off for them. I really don't. I think their money was poorly spent and their publicity was, was definitely not very good. The campaign faced skepticism from some who thought that with the city council's unanimous approval, it was a done deal. You mentioned that the city council voted seven to zero in approving, you know, the proposal and also all of the past mayors and the current mayor was on board with the project as well. And when you were going door to door and when you were talking to people that maybe didn't know so much about it, did they, did they know that their local government had approved it? We struggled with that too. There were people who said, well, I don't know anything about this, but my city government's totally behind it and the Chamber of Commerce and all sorts of important people. Remember, again, people in the state legislature, the, the Coyotes produced this incredible list of people who supported this. So yeah, sometimes we had to kind of um, push back on that, but we had the advantage of, I think, I think there was a deeper issue that we, almost accidentally touched on, but we kind of discovered as we went along. And that was that a lot of people thought that the city government and all the important people were kind of pushing Tempe in some directions that they didn't really want, you know, towards um, 20 story buildings and uh, trying to make development occur as quickly as possible and increase the wealth of the, the place where most residents were into quality of life issues. They addressed the deeper issue of citizens feeling unheard. This grassroots advocacy helped open a pathway for citizens to be more participatory in future city plans and decisions. In the end, the Coyotes campaign fell short with poor publicity and a lack of understanding of Tempe's unique challenges. The victory for Tempe First serves as an inspiration for other grassroots efforts showcasing the power of united citizens working towards a sustainable future. Um, you know, they want to have an outdoor ice rink here in the desert. Oh, God. Yeah. We have 15 degree temperatures this week. You know? That's just so stupid. And the whole idea of putting 2,000, nearly 2,000 high-end apartment units in that little space, here we are really struggling with um, water issues and not, you know, this obliviousness. 
and the gambling, you know, they're just, it just seemed like a non-sustainable kind of um, resource draining, old fashioned kind of development in, a, in just the wrong spot. Voters in Tempe, Arizona, rejected the proposed entertainment district, which would have been the home for the new Arizona Coyotes NHL stadium. Propositions 301, 302, and 303, which would have approved zoning changes and the development agreement with the city, all trailed by double digits in the first round of results. Tempe first claimed victory, stating that residents should be part of all conversations concerning the city's growth. On the other hand, the pro-district campaign, Tempe Wins, expressed disappointment. The proposed district aimed to transform a vacant lot into a bustling commercial, residential, and entertainment hub. It was privately funded, but the city would have provided a significant property tax break, which critics objected to as handouts for billionaires. Congratulations to Marie and everyone at Tempe First. No questions of the month for the month of July, but I do urge anyone with any questions or concerns or anxieties to email forestfiresidechats at gmail.com with all of your questions, which I will answer at the end of every episode. So if you read an article and just want to send it over and say this would be interesting to talk about, please do. I'll really talk about anything. So yeah, I just want to make sure that I'm hitting everything everyone is interested in and keeping you all listening. Anyway, I really hope all of you have an excellent month of August, the last month of the summer. The summer's felt like it has flown by, and I really hope all of you are staying cool and staying safe. Please sign up for our newsletter, donate to the podcast, send your questions, follow us on Instagram. There's so many things you can do. Thank you all so much. Bye.